Our scripture reading today will be from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 66. Lamentations 3, 1 through 66. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has given, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. 
I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. You will curse them. You will, your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, thanks, Lynn. Um, pretty intense, right? Um, Lamentations 3, 1 through 66, isn't a really good Instagram post, right? It's kind of heavy. Um, it's not real cute. Uh, but I think it could be deeply encouraging uh, as, we, as we look at it together. Um, so today we are uh, obviously in chapter 3 of Lamentations, the, the center of the book. Uh, and, and here we're going to find the, the, the central theme of the book of Lamentations and really one of the central themes of the Bible. Uh, the, the first week we looked at Lamentations, I spent a lot of time given the, given the background, like how do we get to where we are in, in Lamentations? And I really went from Genesis to Jeremiah, if you remember. Um, and so, so I did that the first week, and I talked a little bit more, more about that last week as well. And so today, it's going to be really fun. I'm going to talk about the structure of the book, right? It's going to feel like an English class. Um, but, but here's the thing. I, I think even though I, mean, I, I kind of put myself in your shoes, and if we're going to talk about the structure of the book, I'm thinking that sounds brutal. But I, I think it'll help to surface the, 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 the essence and the meaning of what God is trying to reveal to us. Uh, it's been preserved for thousands of years. It's easy to skip over lamentations. But here we are with God's word before us. We would do well to try to study it and learn it and see what God's saying. So uh, you, you might have noticed uh, that Lamentations has five chapters. Uh, and all of them have 22 verses except chapter 3 which has 66 verses. But if you, if, you, if you look at chapters 1, 2, and 4, chapter 5 is a bit of an anomaly, but if you look at chapters 1, 2, and 4, they're all about the same length. Like, so there's 66 verses in chapter 3, but it's the same length as chapters 1, 2, and 4. And so, so here's what's going on. Chapters 1 through 4 are an acrostic. Uh, that means it's, a, it's, a, it's poetry, and each line starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if it was in English, the first line would start with an A, the second line with a B, and so on. But, but each line has three, each, each, each verse has three lines. I already feel like I'm losing y'all probably. I'm just thinking I'd, be, I'd probably be having a hard time paying attention right now. But it's really interesting. If you get this, I think you'll see what the, there's an emphasis being made here. So there's this acrostic going in chapters 1, 2, and 4. And the first line starts with a letter, and it proceeds like A, B, C, D, but it's in the Hebrew language. But in chapter 3, instead of the, the verse, uh, each verse having three lines, there's three verses. And the reason it has three verses is because the first letter of each, of each section has the same letter. 
So, for example, uh, and it, it kind of breaks down a little bit because Hebrew is different than English, obviously. And in Hebrew, like it, it's, it, it kind of reads like Yoda speaks. So it doesn't match the way we, we write or understand things, right? But, uh, but look at verse 28 uh, and 29. So, so we see there that, that, uh, uh, that each of those uh, verses start with let, right? So you can tell it's kind of a pattern there. Uh, so for the English language, that kind of pops out. But then in verse 25 and 27, it doesn't pop out as much, but you can see that the word good is the operative word there. So, so, so this is poetry that we're looking at in chapters 1 through 4, and it's an acrostic. Another thing you should notice about chapter 3 is that it's written in a chiastic format. I just, I'm just imagining me listening to this, and it's, this is more fascinating when I'm studying. I, again, I'm a Bible nerd, but again, I think there's an emphasis here. If you catch it, it's really cool, and, you're, and, it's, and, and things will start to emerge, that the, the emphasis that God's making. A chiastic format means this. Like, usually, uh, in, in our language, like, the, the, the main point comes at the end of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an essay or, or, or whatever, but when it's a, 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 a chiastic format, that means you kind of have a, an A, B, C CBA format, and the emphasis isn't at the end, but it's in the middle. So in Lamentations chapter 3, it begins with God's judgment on Judah. That's how it starts, right? And it's brutal. And then in the middle, you have the part on God's mercy, and then it goes back to God's judgment, but this time on, on Israel or Judah's enemies. So the emphasis of chapter 3 isn't the beginning or the end. The emphasis is in the middle, all right? So, so if we want to know the main idea of Lamentations chapter 3, and Lamentations 3 is in the middle of the book, and Lamentations 3.33 is the exact center of the book. So if you want to know what the book of Lamentations, so two months from now, somebody says, I hear y'all study uh, at Redeemer, y'all looked at Lamentation. What's it about? Go to Lamentations 3.33. That's, that's the big idea. So what I want to do right now, I'm going to read uh, 31, verse 31 to 33 to kind of give the whole, put the whole verse together. But it says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And here's the center. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. The main idea of chapter 3 the, the main idea of the book of Lamentations, and you might even say the, the, one of the main ideas of the Bible, is that God does not afflict from his heart. It's been said that the, the most important thought you think is the thought you think when you think about God. Or, or to put it another day, uh, put it a different way, what do you think when you think about God's thoughts towards you? What is God's disposition towards you? What is the disposition of a holy, perfect God towards you, the real you, the, the, the you that you're a bit embarrassed about, not the you that we all see or the public sees, but the you that carries a bit of shame and an embarrassment of the things you think, do, or say? What is the disposition of a holy God who just tore up the people of Judah towards his people, towards you, towards me. So here's what I want to do. I want to consider two things today. First, I want to consider the heart of God. And second, on how knowing God's heart should cause us to hope in God. So my second point is going to be on our hope. And look, 
this, this matters. The way we understand the heart of God, if, if you struggle with anxiety or depression, if, if, you, if, if life has been hard for you, if you struggle with serious sins, either sins done by you or sins done to you, the heart of God will make a difference in how you make it through this. So, so for us who, who struggle with self-inflicted sins or the sins of others, Knowing God's heart will be good medicine for our soul, or at least I pray it will be. So, so first, let's consider God's heart. Now, uh, we need to remember, again, the context of lamentation takes place as Judah has been taken into exile by the Babylonians, and this was from the Lord. And, and before they even came to the promised land, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that, that God told them if they turn away from the Lord, that another nation would come in and conquer them, and they would take them away out of their land. And, and Israel and Judah did turn away from the Lord, and so God was faithful to his promise, and he sent them into exile. And as I said before, Judah was on the wrong side of God's faithfulness, meaning his judgment. And it was severe. It was intense. This first part we've been reading in chapter 3 and the other parts of chapters 1 and 2, this was no small thing that the people of Judah went through. It was absolutely brutal. And, and after reading how severe this judgment was on Judah, it might be easy to think that God is one who is trigger happy. You know, he's just waiting for them to make a mistake. And then boom, he's going to nail them right when they make a mistake. He's actually wanting to almost daring them. Try something, Judah. See if I don't smack you around if you turn away. It almost seems like that when you're reading it. But what is verse 33 Arguably, the main point of the whole book say, says that God does not afflict from the heart. Now, what does that mean that God does not afflict from the heart? Because he was faithful to afflict them. He told them, this is what happens if you turn away from me. And he did it. So he was faithful. He was just. He was right. But what does it mean he does not afflict from the heart? Well, Dane Orland, in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, put it, put it this way. He said, he, talking about God, is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through the pain. That is indeed why he is doing it. But something recoils within him in sending that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. Or the Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it this way. He said, my brethren, though God is just... Yet his mercy may in some respect said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show, that mercy is more natural to him. And Goodwin goes on to say, but when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is, to manifest that it is his nature and his disposition, and it says that he does it with his whole heart, there is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him. So Thomas Goodwin, this Puritan, explains this as God's natural acts and his strange acts. Natural meaning is that it's, it's God's natural disposition, meaning it's what he, he does in, in, in a natural sense. That's his disposition. And strange meaning that it's less natural to them, meaning it's, it's not according to his disposition. Now, that might be interesting to say there's a natural act and strange act. Who cares what Thomas Goodwin says? Who cares what I say? Is this what the scripture says, right? This is what we have to weigh things on. And so turn to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah will be easy to find. It's a book before Lamentations. So just go left a few chapters. 
Jeremiah 32. If you remember, Jeremiah is leading up to lamentation where Jeremiah is saying, hey, things are about to get really bad. And he's warning the people to repent so this disaster doesn't have to come upon them. Uh, and so anyway, so this is what's happening in Jeremiah. And looks, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41. And then after that, if you want to kind of put a pen in Isaiah 28, we're going to go to that next. But Jeremiah 32, verse 41 says this. God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. So God is saying through Jeremiah that he is going to rejoice in doing them good and with all of his heart and soul. What God is talking about restoring them and doing them good, he says he rejoices in it and he does it with all of his heart and soul. It gives him pleasure to do it and he is eager to do it. It is natural. It's what he is predisposed to do to his people is to do them good and rejoice in doing them good. Now, let's consider God's strange acts. Turn to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah is the book before uh, Jeremiah, so keep going left. Isaiah chapter 28, and we're looking at verse 20, uh, 21. Isaiah 28, verse 21. says this, Isaiah 28, 21. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work. Alien is his work. So Isaiah 28 is referring to God judging Judah for their sins, which will eventually have them taken away uh, by, the, by the Babylonians. They'll be exiled into, into Bab Babylon. And so here's what he's saying. God says at Mount Perizim and in the, in the valley of Gibeon, it's going to be something like that. Well, here's what happened at Mount Perizim, and here's what happened at the Valley of Gibeon. God fought for Israel. He fought for Judah at those places. And so what's strange is he's going to fight against Judah and against Israel. And that is not natural to God's heart. It's a strange and alien act of God. It goes against his heart for his people. But when he restores them, he does it with all of his heart and with all of his soul, and he rejoices in that. So, what is God's disposition to you? Is he trigger happy with you? Is, is he waiting to, to, to smack you for the sins you've done? Is he waiting to do that? His disposition towards you, God's people, is to rejoice in doing you good. His disposition towards you is one that is eager to show mercy to you. Charles Spurgeon noted that in the four Gospels, 89 chapters about the life of Jesus, there's only one place we learn about the, the, the heart of Jesus, or, or where Jesus actually speaks explicitly about his own heart. It's in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And this is the one place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And he says this, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the disposition of Jesus towards you today? It's gentle, it's lowly. Inviting you to come to him to rest. Gentle and lowly, come to me, rest. The disposition of Jesus towards you is tender, calling you to him to find rest for your souls. He rejoices in doing you good. It is not his heart to afflict you. If you are going to be faithful, what you need more than any kind of discipline, more than Bible reading or prayer, as important and essential as those are to being faithful, what you need more than that is to know that God's disposition, his heart towards you, is not to afflict you, but to rejoice in doing you good, to give you rest, because he is gentle and lowly in heart. And if you get that deep in your bones, then you have reason to have great hope. So my second point, we'll talk about our hope. Look at Lamentations 3, verse 21 through 27. And again, we're in that, that central part of Lamentations. This is the main emphasis of chapter 3 and really the whole book. So Lamentations 3, verse 21 to 27 says this, Lamentations 3, 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore... I have hope. You know, he's referred earlier that he was losing hope. He says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The, the, the book of Lamentations is, 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 is being written during a time of deep grief and chaos. They were under God's judgment and things got really ugly. Like, like he said earlier, I, did, I don't know happiness, I've lost hope. In, in, in chapter three, verse one through three, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Beaten down, deeply discouraged. But he's not without hope. And I think there's three reasons why he has hope that we see in these few verses that we just read. First, he has hope because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies are new every morning. His expectation for the future is to consistently find God's new mercies on a daily basis because it is not God's heart to afflict, but he rejoices in doing his people good. And we see a second reason in verse 24 for hope. We read, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The hope is located not in the external situation, which is awful, but it's located in the Lord. Even the Lord who has brought affliction to him. He hopes in God, not in some other vision of the good life. And even though this affliction came from the Lord, he knows that it's not God's heart to afflict him. God has afflicted them, but it is not God's heart 
to afflict them. So the Lord is his portion, even when, he is affl- when the Lord is afflicting him, and not in life working out or being smooth. And, and we see the same thing in Job 13, 15, where he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. In Hosea 6, 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And finally, the third reason for hope is because the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Look at verse 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Learning to wait is good for our souls. Most of us, all of us, are going to have to endure long seasons of waiting. And it will always be excruciating, probably the, the, depending on the circumstance. But we're all going to have this season of waiting that if we're honest, we feel like God's kind of messed up on this one. He's pushed this one a bit too far. But we're all going to have to do this. And look, sometimes it's hard to wait when a, when a date is set, like maybe a wedding date. You know, that, that day is going to come and you're, you're really waiting for it to happen. But you know what's even more painful is when there is no date set and you don't know if this thing will ever happen. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of if. And, and, and there's no promise to say that it will happen. That's the kind of waiting that can become maddening. But as you consider those times where you've had to wait, which we've all had to wait, and, and different forms of, of, of pain that we've gone through, where it's, whether it's been like mildly annoying or excruciating, I'd imagine all of us have been through something pretty close to excruciating as far as waiting goes. But in those seasons, did you not find that you began to seek the Lord? And, and wouldn't you say that, that the thing that you were waiting on was less significant than the Lord? Like if you were to say, which one's greater, the thing you're waiting on or the Lord? Well, then, you know, on paper, we'd say the Lord. Sometimes we, we miss this. Sometimes it takes that waiting to, to, uh, to make that emerge, to make us even seek the Lord. I know for me, generally, when I'm in these seasons of waiting, that's, that's a sweet time with me and the Lord where I'm looking to him in new and in fresh ways. And it says that he is good. This is the word of God says, if you are waiting, the word of God said, the Lord is good to you who are waiting and seeking the Lord. So right now, if you have troubles and you are waiting on the Lord and you're seeking him in that, the word of God says that he is good to you in that waiting. John Newton said, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And so if God is currently withholding from you right now, it is not because it's not because he is delayed. It is because it's not necessary now. Sometimes waiting can reveal that our hope is not located in the Lord, but on the thing that we might be waiting on. And it takes that waiting to kind of make that thing emerge as becoming maybe, maybe like, a, like an idol or like our God. And perhaps while we wait, while, while lesser hopes begin to fade and fail to come to fruition, while we deal with real disappointment, you know, the kind of disappointment that can't be fixed with pat answers, maybe we get low enough, maybe we get humble enough to where we can hear something. Maybe as we wait, maybe while we're in a season of just chaos and frustration and seeking the Lord, maybe we get low enough, sad enough, disturbed enough that we hear something. 
And maybe this is what we might hear when we get to that low spot. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And maybe then we will see that there is no greater hope than to have our Savior call us to himself to give us rest, who is gentle and lowly in heart. It is not God's heart to afflict you. What it is, his heart is to rejoice in doing you good and to give rest for your souls. And when you find that, when you find the heart of God that is gentle and lowly, then you found your greatest hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we read in the scriptures of what happened to your people. You did afflict them. It was brutal. It was painful. But as we read in Lamentations 3, we see that it was not your heart to afflict them, but rather that you rejoice in doing your people good, that you are gentle and lowly in heart, and you invite us to yourself to find rest for our souls. How foolish we are to look for other places to turn from you when you call us and offer such a great and precious promise. Would you help us to trust in you, to trust that your steadfast love never ceases, that great is your faithfulness and that you are a portion and that we will hope in you. In Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.